Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival lineup. Ten Years Japan gets a new director. Submissions for the Best Foreign Film Oscar have been announced. And for our films this week, we look at Jackie Chan in The Foreigner and Blade Runner 2049. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk in a futuristic dystopian cityscape, a.k.a. Hong Kong, is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, everybody. Hi there. How's it going? Going good, going good. Uh, I guess we're kind of back here with a kind of a full-on episode, right? We've had... Uh, couple of interim episodes but we're actually doing an east screen film kind of and west screen film this week yeah we have so many east screen films that we didn't have time we well i don't know if we still have time to get to um the film that everyone everyone cannot wait to hear about which is patrick kong's never too late yes and it's never yes. too late to hear about a patrick kong film so um, but there's no steffi in it paul so you might just like ah, screw it we don't want to hear about it yeah yeah um, but speaking of Steffi, I did see a trailer for what is it, the uh, Way of the Empty Fist or something? It's like a uh, the Empty Hand, Empty Hand, uh, karate movie yeah. looks kind of like Throwdown. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that that looks. Yeah, I'm kind of excited for that. Um, still no sign of uh, uh, L is for Love, Love L is for Lies two though. Uh, just no idea where that film is. <laughs> the longer you wait, the more disappointed you're going to be, Paul. Because okay. that was that was the film, the first film I saw in 2017, and I still I stand by the fact it's probably still one of the worst. Hmm. And that may have something to do with the release cycle. But again, as I said last time, we still got Lucky Fat Man, so I don't know what's going on. Um, but you know, we'll let you know when we get our hands on that little film. Um, but we're here to talk about some other films this week, and as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about Jackie Chan's latest, The Foreigner, as well as the long-anticipated and uh, perhaps much uh, much liked uh, by many people, at least that I've talked to, talk to. We'll see what Kevin has to say about it, and that is Blade Runner 2049. But before we get further into that, uh, let's just hop right into it with this week's news. <laughs> Over here at the news desk, uh, funny you should, talk, you should talk about Steffi there, Paul. Um, it, so first, we're going to kick off with the uh, Hong Kong Asian Film Festival lineup. Um, as you know, there are two you know, film festivals that I look forward to greatly every year, and that's, of course, the Hong Kong International Film Festival. And second is the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival, because, you know, I am an Asian film buff, and we do do an Asian cinema show here. So... Of course, Asian cinema is, is what we care about the most, and uh, so it's always great to uh, have a festival that's dedicated 
to Asian cinema. And this year, as always, uh, me and um, friends of the show, uh, including Ross Chan and I think Shelly, who's been on Shelly Chan, who's been on the show before, we are co- some of the writers for this year's uh, booklet. So we can finally reveal what is on the lineup this year. Um, and as I was saying, Steffi, some people have joked that this is the uh, uh, Hong Kong Asian Steffi Film Festival because uh, this year's lineup features, uh, I think, 60-something or 70 films, and it includes the three of the major premieres are films starring Steffi. Uh, first of all, you got the opening film, which is uh, Somewhere Beyond the Mist. Uh, it is the new film by director Chen King Wai, who did, uh, he was a documentary director. He did KJ and I think uh, The Taste of Youth uh, late last year. Um, and this is his first uh, fictional feature film. Um, and this is the um, the film that, the only film that hasn't been, hasn't premiered yet. That's from the first film initiative the very first edition of the first film initiative. The other two films were um, Mad World and Weeds on Fire. So this is the third film that was part of that initiative and finally is making its premiere. The film had its world premiere earlier this week, actually, at the Busan International Film Festival. And um, if Paul, I I don't know if you follow uh, Steffi's activities on Facebook, but you see that actually Steffi traveled all the way to Korea uh, to attend the premiere. This is the local premiere. It will be the opening film. Um, and the other opening film is In Your Dreams, which is the uh, uh, film from the second edition of the first film initiative. Uh, it is from director Tom Wai Cheng, and it stars Karina Lau, who also produces the film, uh, as a teacher who has a uh, love affair with a student uh, played by M. Siu Heng. So these are two First, film, first feature film initiative film uh, from the Hong Kong's uh, Film Development Fund are opening the festival. The other two um, uh, Steffi films are uh, The Empty Hands, as you men talked about before, The Empty Hands, the second film uh, directed by actor Chapman Toe, and it will be the gala presentation. Um, and actually the film's premiere is happening one the day before the actual opening of the film so if you couldn't get a ticket to the to the screening at the festival it's okay you can see it the next day at the regular cinema that film stars steffi as the daughter of a uh, dojo owner who wants to sell her late father's dojo but it stopped when she learns that the uh actually the majority shareholder of dojo is actually one of uh, her father's uh, students uh, played by chairman toe and the third Steffi film uh, is, just flipping over here, it will be part of the Midnight Madness presentation, actually, is Husband Killers. And I think I review Husband Killers on a show, right, Paul, when I first when I saw it in Osaka? Yes, you did. Yeah, I think we did a pretty elaborate uh, review. And, and actually, I think when it comes out, Paul, we should probably, maybe you could run that that review again, maybe, uh, yeah. when it, near the time when it comes out. But you remember that film, it stars Steffi as a professional killer who learns that um, her longtime husband uh, is actually having an affair with a professional thief played by Chrissy Chow. And just before the two women um, tear each other to pieces, they learn that the man, uh, their man is actually uh, has another th- a third girl, girl uh, played by Gailey Locke. So and that one is a fun little exploitation film, and that film is also having its local premiere um, here at the Asian Film Festival before its release, uh, I think sometime in mid-November, I believe. Um, okay, so the, the Hong Kong Asian Steffi Film Festival uh, aside, there's also a couple of other special presentations. The closing films this year, um, you have The White Girl. 
the new film by uh, Christopher Doyle and Jenny Swen. Um, it stars uh, Oda Giri Joe, the, the Japanese actor, um, and it's already had its, I think, premiere over in the London Film Festival, and it's finally making its way back to Hong Kong um, uh, as the closing film. Um, and it will also actually be at the Golden Horse Film Festival, uh, which is starting um, around the same time as the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. So um, if you go to film festival, I'm sure this film is going to travel uh, regardless of its quality, just because of the name involved. And yeah, um, you probably get to see it eventually. The other uh, closing film this year is Sylvia Chen's uh, Love Education, which I think we talked about before. It was last time we talked about uh, its award uh, success. It's already been nominated for seven Golden Horse Awards, um, and it's the closing film of the Busan Film Festival. It will be playing at the Tokyo Filmix, and it opens in China, I think, early November, and then opens in Taiwan mid-November, and I don't know when it will open uh, in Hong Kong, but I will be traveling to Taiwan uh, for the Golden Horse Festival, not the awards, just the festival, and it will be around um, the time that uh, the film opens in regular cinema, so I'm hoping to catch it uh, when I'm in Taiwan. Uh, what else? Let's see, game presentation. Aside from The Empty Hand, we also have The Brink, which is the first film by assistant director Jonathan Lee. He worked with uh, 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 Soy Chan a lot, and he also worked on SPL2, well, which was also a Soy Chan film. Uh, but this action film stars uh, Zhang Jin, or Max Zhang, um, and Sean Yu, um, and it looks pretty intense. Uh, and the film has world premiere at... Um, uh, Busan International Film Festival, and from what I've heard is that the film is actually quite solid, so I quite uh, look forward to it. Um, two world premiere local films um, will be tomorrow is another day, another day, um, which is the directorial debut of scriptwriter Chen Tai Li. He co-wrote, I think, co-wrote. Uh, uh, um, um, gosh, he co-wrote a couple of local films. So I think. He's the writer of The Way We Dance. Yes, yes. And this film stars Teresa Mo as the mother of an um, an uh, autistic child, I think, or mentally mentally um, uh, mentally uh, 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 ill child. Um, and it's, it looks like a very local film, and it's quite set in you know, the, the the public estates, and it's a very um, local topic, and seems like a very down to earth role for Teresa Mo. And if they play the cards right. I think they're trying to get Theresa Mo nominated for Hong Kong Film Awards uh, come come uh, January. So let's see his chances. I won't be able to see the film um, because of my scheduling issues, and I think I'll just be able to catch it when it comes out. But um, it looks interesting. There's a trailer I think already online if you uh, can look for it. The other world premiere is um, a documentary called Light Up. It is about a uh, barrier-free theater troupe, um, a theater troupe in Hong Kong that actually accepts members with disabilities, physical disabilities, and uh, is about the whole process of trying to um, uh, get them to, to put together a play and to put it on stage and to overcome these disabilities and to really shine on stage. It sounds like an interesting film, and again, I bought a ticket to it, so that should be interesting. Um, I'm going rambling on and on, uh, but other films... Um, Big films that we can expect to see here in Hong Kong. Of course, John Woo's Manhunt. Yay, finally. Um, Hirokazu Kore does the third murder, which uh, is a name that I'll be talking about right after this. Uh, Before We Vanish, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa horror film. Um, and a whole section on uh, Taiwan films, The Great Buddha Plus, which has, uh, I think, eight or 
10 nominations at this year's Golden Horse Film Festival. Shuttle Life, also starring Sylvia Chang, is a Malaysian film. Um, and yeah, just a lot, lot more. Um, of course, uh, you can check out the full lineup um, at uh, www.hkaff.asia. And the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival 2017 will run from October 31st until November 20th. So if you're in Hong Kong during that time, and uh, if there are still tickets available to some of the films, do check it out. I think it's a great festival. The cinemas are nice, and it's assigned seating, so there's no you know free seating, lining, queuing shenanigans. Uh, just buy a ticket, show up, and you might catch me at a screening. And that's worth the price of admission alone. Ha! <laughs> uh, I no refunds, guys. Sorry, no refunds. <laughs> All right. Uh, next bit of news: you've got some news about uh, ten years. Which, if you're not familiar, ten years is the name of sort of the Hong Kong <laughs> anthology film, uh, somewhat politically oriented about sort of ten years in the future of Hong Kong, and it kind of got some legs and split off, and some other countries picked up the mantle, right? And uh, Japan was one of those. Yes. Uh, well, the the actual um, the international the branching off of the project was initiated from Hong Kong side. Um, someone who works at the sales agent uh, for the original film, I think, came up with the idea of expanding the project. And, and of course, the producer and the creator of the original film, they came up with the idea of expanding the film to other countries because it's a great idea, right? It's just you know, especially in Asia when, you know, future and it's always sort of, you got all this political turmoil happening in different countries in Asia. And it's always very intriguing to, to see. And, you know, things are very uncertain every moment, I think, here in Asia, especially with geopolitics and things like that. So it's always interesting to look at each country and how they view the future. Um, so the, the free um, spinoffs, they're already um, on the way. They're already in production. Uh, we're Thailand, um, I think we talked about it. They ran a crowdfunding campaign earlier um, this year, which wasn't very successful, even though it has very big names behind it, like Apichapong, and um, uh, who is directing and producing, uh, who is directing one of the films and also producing Apichapong. He's like a, he's um, pretty much Thailand's most famous art house filmmaker, and he goes to Cannes a lot. So, um, so that's they're set there. I mean, they got. They got him as a producer, and he's also one of the directors. Um, Taiwan also announced uh, five filmmakers. Um, not yet, not quite famous, but um, they've got a solid. I think you know Taiwan is solid history of activist cinema and you know touching on political issues and things like that. So that should be interesting. And now Japan um, has brought on a pretty big power player uh onto uh onto their project uh so the uh five directors are pretty young directors it's announced already um they had a huge press conference in at busan um and the five directors uh the five young directors um are chie hayakawa who made a short film called niagara which went to um the uh, cine foundation competition the Cannes film festival yusuke kinoshita who was a a um if a young filmmaker who received a scholarship at the Pia Film Festival back in 2005. Pia Film Festival is one of the top, I think, independent amateur filmmaking festivals in, in Japan. It's sort of, you can say, it's like a Japanese fresh wave with more money. Um, Kei Ishikawa, who, who, did, who actually is the most famous director of the bunch, he did a film earlier this year called uh, Gugoroku's Traces of Sin that went to Berlin. Uh, and actually, I think it's an excellent um, uh, mystery drama, uh, which I think you should all check out if you have a chance. 
Um, and there's also Akio Fujimura, uh, who um, made who won um, an award last year at a in the indie film festival called Skip City. And the fifth one is Meguri Tsuno, and I'm sad to say I don't know anything about her. Um, sorry to be Tsuno, uh, I apologize. But yeah, five young filmmakers, which is the idea, which is also always the concept of the film. Um, to have five young filmmakers uh, look at 10 years into their country. Um, but they've s- signed up a, a real power player mentor to guide these films. And that's Hirokazu Koreeda, the director, um, who is best known for films like Afterlife and Nobody Knows, Like Father, Like Son, Our Little Sister. And he was in Cannes. Um, again with after the storm and this year he was in venice he is just like one of japan's most respected filmmakers uh and so he will be mentoring the projects at the as the executive producer of the film and uh from what i hear uh because i've actually spoken to the producer uh the film when i was on a my visit in tokyo earlier this year is that he is he is quite involved in the project he had a hand in picking the directors he is he is reading the scripts so he will be not just be a name on the poster he's going to be quite involved with the film and it's going to be quite interesting how it turns out um and and apparently from what i hear is that they the the producer the hong kong the, the people who got this project off the ground they're interested in creating a korean version but there's no plans or no plan the plans aren't solid yet so we don't know when that's happening um uh, i don't know what the other two projects would be done but 10 years japan at the moment is uh planned to uh complete next year uh, sometime in 2018 and yeah uh it's going to be quite interesting i think indeed <clears throat> and perhaps there are plans for a 10 years china which is just going to be the song, uh, the Chinese version of the song "Everything Is Awesome" from the Lego Movie. Right? <laughs> Here's the thing: it's quite interesting. I, I, I actually, the producer asked me, um, the line producer in Japan, they asked me if Ten Years Japan or any of the Ten Years will have a chance to be shown in Hong Kong cinemas, which was an interesting question because last year you remember the film uh had a very short but very successful run for a limited release in hong kong but it was quickly pulled uh sorry that was in 2015 right i think 2015 um and it was quickly pulled um because uh and this just here's i'm not sure if this is true but let's just say that it played in major chains and even though it was still performing quite healthy uh, it's quite well in, in the box office. It was pulled rather prematurely. Now it just happens that these cinema chains all have business in the main in the mainland. Uh, and of course, when Ten Years won the Hong Kong Film Award for Best Film, the news was banned in China. And uh, one of the directors um, of the five Ten Years shorts also directed Trevisa. So when Trevisa won um, the Hong Kong Film Awards, the mention of that film was also deleted in in some Chinese media. Um, so the question is, will 10 years spinoffs ever play in Hong Kong cinemas? And that's a question I think worth pondering. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll, and to use your phrase, Paul, we'll have to wait and see. Mm. Yes, indeed. All right. Our final bit of news. Um, we'd be remiss without talking about it. I guess the best foreign film for the Oscars announced, right? Well, yeah, it's only the uh, the list of submissions. So every year, uh, about 190, 100 something countries, they each submit a film to the Academy for consideration. 
um, for the best foreign film Oscar. And of course, the way that they um, uh, oh shit, shoot, <laughs> shoot, I just noticed a typo in my story on the website. But anyway, um, my point is, every year they about hundred the, the uh, each country has has a committee and they put together, they choose a film and they send it to the Academy for for consideration. And uh, this year, um, apparently the Academy received 192 films uh, for submissions, which is a record. Um, and and um, actually, I better double check if it's 190 or 90. Anyway, um, but just to cover, we don't want to cover all the countries, obviously, but we should cover at least you know some of the Asian selections because I think you'll be quite amused by what you hear. Um, so we talk about East Asia. Um, Hong Kong chose Mad World, which is a perf- I think personally, I think is one of the best choices that Hong Kong's made in recent years. Because if you remember, we've sent two to four to the Oscars, <laughs> and we sent Painted Skin to the Oscars. Um, so this year it felt like they finally picked something that you know actually has a reputation in film festival circuit, and it's actually won awards to prove that. It's actually a quality film, so they're sending Mad World to the Oscars. Now, I'm not saying that it has any chance of winning or even being shortlisted, but you know, it's a decent, decent choice. Uh, Singapore, Singapore picked uh, Pop Eye, a uh, road drama that's set in Thailand. Uh, it was produced by Anthony Chan, who directed uh, Ilo Ilo. Um, I think Ilo Ilo was sent to the Oscars that year, but again, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't shortlisted despite. Uh, it had hum- humongous success um, on the festival circuit, especially when it premiered in Cannes. Uh, South Korea sent a taxi driver, which is, um, again, perfectly normal choice, perfectly good choice. Although, you know, considering how many films from Can- uh, from Korea ends up in Cannes every year, you would think that South Korea wanted to send one of those films. You know, people might have heard of those films and they would give that a chance because Academy voters... Let's face it, they're not going to watch all 90s or 190 submissions every year. They're only going to watch the ones they've heard of. So it's more likely they'll watch a film that played in Cannes than a, another film that you know they never heard of. That even though it was a hit in South Korea, they're not going to watch the film. They're just going to watch the films they've heard of. Um, so even though A Taxi Driver is a solid film, and of course it was a huge hit in Korea, I don't know about what its chances are at the Oscars. Taiwan picked a very interesting film. They picked a documentary named Small Talk. Uh, that, again, it has some um, uh, festival traction, and I think it's an excellent film. It's about a director who picks up a camera uh, to film uh, her lesbian mother, who is also a priestess at funerals. And it, it, um, it sounds interesting. It sounds very light, but actually the film is very heavy and it deals with a lot of serious issues, and I think it's an excellent film, um, and I think it's an inspired choice. Um, uh, so yeah, but wait till like Japan. Japan uh, picked a tearjerker named her love boy was bathwater. Again, I don't know if that committee has something against Koreeda, but you know all his films like get into like can, and yet like they never pick his films. Instead, they pick some tearjerker. Which I thought was fine. I think Love Boys, her Love Boys, Bathwater is fine, but it is hardly Oscar caliber, and it's especially odd choice considering that Japan has won the best foreign film Oscar before. So you think they would have a better eye for you know picking the right film, uh, but who knows? Uh, Cambodia, interestingly, they picked 
um, Angelina Jolie's First They Killed My Father, which you can see on Netflix now. Um, that film was shot in Cambodia with Cambodian crew, and it's in the local Cambodian language. And it has uh, Rithi Pan, who is a renowned Cambodian filmmaker, as his producer. So it actually counts as a foreign film, and it is going to represent Cambodia at the, the race. And just for the, the backing, I think it has a pretty good chance of being nominated. At least it'll get seen. You know, even if the voters won't go see the screenings, they can just turn on Netflix and watch it. In fact, we can all just turn on Netflix and watch the film. Um, so that that's very interesting. It just might be the first Netflix film to ever be submitted uh, for the best Oscar film race. So that's interesting. But my favorite submission, possibly of all time, comes from China. Because they have chosen to send Wolf Warrior 2. Yeah, baby. To the Oscars. <laughs> which, which, and I said on Twitter, I assume this because China do, really does not care about winning a Best Foreign Film Oscar, which is why they sent Wolf Warrior 2. Come on. Come on. Seriously. It's just, there's like no words to explain. Okay. It's not just a complete, complete turning a blind eye to a complete ignorance of what Academy voters go for. It is just a completely tone-deaf choice in terms of quality. Like, come on. It, it, when did an Oscar... Like, if, if a film that really does well at the box office should therefore, you know, be considered for, for Oscars, then Transformers would be a multi-Oscar nominee. Right? It's just completely tone-deaf choice. And it's just embarrassingly tone-deaf, which is why I find it so funny. Um... But yeah, these are your Oscar, some of your Oscar Oscar uh, submission, uh, some of your Oscar contenders this year. Um, there will be a short list of, I think, uh, nine films that will be announced in January before the, oh, sorry, in December. And then the official final five film nomination list will be announced uh, along with the rest of the nominations in January. And then we'll find out the winner in February. But it's unlikely that this show will ever talk about the Oscar foreign film nominees again because I do not think an Asian film will even get shortlisted this year. All right. But if it does, we will come back to discuss for sure. Well, let's face it. We're not going to talk about Wolf Warrior 2 winning the best foreign film Oscar. Yeah. But, you know, in these in this populist days, you know, you really never know anymore. Yeah. It might win best the- shirtless volleyball scene. That's about it. I didn't realize that was a new that's a new category. New category this year, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it is at the uh the, the East Screen West Screen Oscars. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. All right. Let us take a short musical break and we'll be back with our film reviews this week. Up first, Jackie Chan in The Foreigner. <laughs> And welcome back. So our first review this week, we're switching things up again, um, because funny enough, the somewhat East Screen film, uh, and we were discussing sort of before we started recording, whether this qualifies as an East Screen film or not, and it kind of technically does, because even though it's got a pretty strong Western cast, it's directed by Martin Campbell from New Zealand, um, you do have China Money here uh, in the form of um, 
uh, Wanda pictures and also uh, Wagi Brothers name is attached to it in the beginning and you've got Jackie Chan's uh, as one of the producer and his production company involved as well. So, um, yeah, The Foreigner, I guess we can say, qualifies as our East Screen film for this week. And normally Kevin covers the East Screen stuff, but like many Jackie Chan films, he totally bypasses Hong Kong these days in terms of cinema releases. Um, so, uh, while we've gotten it here in the States, it's opened in Europe, it has not opened in Hong Kong. And uh, Kevin, you were saying before the show that you don't even have a release date for it, right? No, we have no idea when it's coming. Actually, Jackie Chan films do end up getting released here eventually. I mean, we did get Kung Fu Yoga and Railroad Tigers, but they always come up a month late because I think we all know that Jackie Chan has no chance of, you know, winning winning any box office battles here in Hong Kong anymore. Um, so, so they just sort of dump it a bit later because, you know, Jackie Chan can't ignore the, the Hong Kong audience or someone has to pick it up here. So I'm sure it'll make its way down here eventually. We just don't know when. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the film. The story, uh, when Chinese-born British citizen Quan's daughter is killed in a bomb blast set by a new IRA terrorist group, uh, he takes it upon himself to find justice. When law enforcement seems unable to help, he seeks out Liam Hennessy, played by Pierce Brosnan, an Irish politician with old ties to the IRA. As Quan increasingly pressures Liam for answers, the past of both men start to come to the surface, and further confrontations ensue. Uh, so if you've seen the trailer for this, uh, this doesn't look like your sort of typical Jackie Chan film. This is certainly more in line with um, something like Crime Story. Uh, and Jackie's always been on record as saying, you know, he wants to be like De Niro. He wants to do serious films. He wants to show people he can act. Um but here, I guess, you know, uh, I guess one of the big issues is that for a lot of Westerners, his heavy accent, you know, I guess they feel it gets in the way. So learning how to use Jackie is very important. Um, and Cynthia, no, hang on. <coughs> Cynthia, Daddy's recording. You got to go out, okay? Uh, you ask Mommy, okay? Okay, well, I can't find it right now because I'm recording. Okay, I'll find it later. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> what is she looking for? Glue. Looking for glue. Oh. All right. Where was I? Um, so, you go look for glue first. You, huh? you sure? All right. Hang you on. sure we we'll go look for glue just, first? Just a yeah. second. Let me find her some glue. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it helps to have a director who knows how to use Jackie, um, what he's good at, not from, from the action side, because he, he knows himself what he can do from years as a stunt guy and an actor and a director, of course. But when it comes to getting Jackie to, you know, do drama on screen, um, it's helpful to have somebody who can use him well. And I think that the director here, Martin Campbell, 
has a good sense of that. Um, now, Martin Campbell, if you're not familiar, his, the last film he did was actually some time ago. That was Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds. So took some time off after that, I guess. Uh, he did a TV stint, and uh, now he's back doing film. Perhaps better known for uh, Casino Royale, sort of rebooting the Daniel Craig franchise. I think he did the Mel Gibson film, uh, Edge of Darkness, which I, I didn't see that one. But it seems the like... Golden Eye. Golden it, Eye. The Golden Eye. Okay, yeah. So he has he yeah. has a sense for this kind of genre, right? Uh, the sort of thriller, spy kind of action genre. Um, and he handles that well here, I think, um, in terms of the direction. <laughs> Uh, Jackie is in fine form and with this kind of less is more approach. Um, it sometimes comes off as unintentionally funny, I would say, um, you know, but it still works in the context of the movie. It's not a comedy. It's not an action comedy by any way, shape or form. So if you're going to compare something like this, it's, you know, definitely on the opposite end of the spectrum as something like uh, Railroad Tigers, um, which almost gets comic bookish by design, right? Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things you see in the trailer and, and throughout the film is Jackie Chan, you know, relentlessly coming after, um, both Pierce Bronston and other people saying, you know, give me the names, give me the names. He wants the names of the terrorist who set the bomb. He's like, I want the names. I want the names, names, names. And it reminded me, um, of an old movie from the eighties, a John Cusack movie called better off dead, where there's a sequence where the paper boy wants to get his two dollars for delivering papers for two weeks or something and he basically just shows up throughout the movie going two dollars two dollars and he gets like an army of paper boys to chase after uh, john cusack so while there is <coughs> excuse me while there is some humor here again it's not meant to be humorous but it doesn't break the film apart um jackie is basically doing a liam neeson here but with his own flair. Um, in some ways, too, because he's an elderly man in his, like, you know, mid to late 60s here, um, he's kind of paralleling what Sam was kind of doing in The Bodyguard, you know, so this kind of guy who's got a military background, got skills, but he's older. He doesn't move like he used to, but he's still able to, you know, uh, get things done when he needs to. There are a few Jackie-style moments in terms of some of the action sequences, but um, there's some gunplay as well. And I think the director does a good job of reining Jackie in. Again, as I said, a sort of um, less is more approach. Jackie doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. In fact, he's probably got less screen time than I was expecting for a Jackie-centric film. There's quite a bit of screen time given to the foreign cast, um, and a loss and some of the politics involved. I mean, I don't really know a lot about the IRA, but um, you kind of get into um, some of, I guess, the modern sensibilities of, of the IRA, which you don't hear too much about anymore, at least in, in Western media. Um, so, um, you know, I think that that approach of, of having him, you know, he emotes emotionally with you know, his expressions, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, um, and again, it can get into this, un this, you know, these unintentionally funny moments at times, but it works in the context of the film, and it works with Jackie doing drama, basically. Pierce Brosnan, um, again, is kind of the, 
antagonist here who's set opposite Jackie, um, who's seemingly caught up in events, right? He's kind of like this older guy who once was involved with the IRA, who's turned now his life into, you know, a political mover and shaker, as it were. And Jackie kind of singles him out because of his background. And the two of them, when they, they're on screen together, I think they have decent chemistry. I mean, Pierce, too, is no stranger to Hong Kong. He did uh, the series Noble House uh, back in the day in the 80s. And uh, he was also James Bond in the somewhat Hong Kong-centric film Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, <clears throat> so it's good to see the two of them finally, you know, uh, getting some screen time together. There are cameos here by some other notable people who might be recognized. Um... Uh, let me find uh, the actor's name. I just had it. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, shoot. Where is it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Michael El Michael McElhattan, uh, who was Roos Bolton in uh, Game of Thrones, is here. He's kind of Liam's right-hand man. Um, Orla Brady, uh, so if you, if you watch Into the Badlands, she plays Liam's, Liam's wife here. Um, the Daniel Wu series, Into the Badlands, she's um, one of the characters there. <coughs> Excuse me. So you, um, you, know, you get some recognizable faces as well as Pierce Brosnan here uh, on screen. And, you know, again, the politics of this take up a lot of time. It's not one continuous stunt sequence after another. Um, by a standard sort of Jackie Chan action movie, this moves kind of slow, um, you know, but it's still an interesting story and it's interesting to see once the ball gets rolling, um, backgrounds for these characters get uncovered and you learn more about them. Um, and, you know, there, there are a couple twists in there, which I won't say too much about here, um, but, you know, there's enough momentum to keep this at an almost two hour, you know, ratio for the film. Um, still entertaining uh, that by the end I didn't really feel like it was too long it told the story uh, that it needed to tell and I, I was very entertained so a good solid Jackie film not quite as dark perhaps as crime story but uh, at least as entertaining and um, I think if you're if it's out there and you've got a free afternoon and you enjoy Jackie Chan uh, at all it's one to go out and watch because again it's a different kind of role for him and it's good to see him kind of maturing into the stuff he's doing. Has there been any discussion of this or any buzz about this in Hong Kong at all? I mean, well, when the trailer came out, actually, there were people who were looking forward to it. it was, you know, it was like a serious Jackie Chan film. But that was when the, the the foreign trailer came out, not a Hong Kong version trailer came out. So we have no idea when this movie's coming out. And I think there are some minor. Um, I guess uh, ex anticipation for this, but no. I once the film that trailer came out and people you know saw it enough, but then no release date came in. You know we still don't know when it's coming out, and uh, who knows? Maybe it's because the fact that it's not really a traditional Jackie Chan action movie that that you know the shivers might hesitate a little bit uh, about it. I, I'm not sure what's going on, but actually I I do I do look forward to it a bit more than. Then, well, I can't say Railroad Tiger because I worked on Railroad Tiger, so there's been no real anticipate or not anticipate. And you know, Kung Fu Yoga is Kung Fu Yoga, right? But yeah, um, I, I look forward to seeing this one actually.
right, and welcome back. So for our West Screen review this week, again, we're swapping things up, and I'm going to throw the ball over to Mr. Ma with uh, his review of Blade Runner 2049. This is a real heavy one because, I mean, it's one of those films that get so much, you know, fanboy buzz and all that stuff that it, it's hard for me to sort of do this solo. But, you know, I'm, Paul, you can join in whenever you want, I suppose. And, and I'm sure you join in at the, uh, the end with your own take on it. But anyway, uh, Blade Runner 2049, it's uh, the new film in the... Uh, what do we call it? Do we call it a cult classic, I guess? Yeah, the sequel to the cult classic, sci-fi, uh, noir, thriller, whatever, what have you. And um, Ridley Scott um, took a backseat this time. He's only executive producer. Uh, he hand the reins over to Denis Villeneuve, uh, the Canadian director uh, who also did Arrival, which I loved, and also Prisoners and Sicario. He's, I think he's one of the best working directors today um and and so it was quite excited to hear that he was doing it um the story trying not to give away really much spoilers even though the film has already come out for two weeks um but of course we're supposed to keep mum about spoilers so um here we go picking up decades after the events of the first blade runner um K, uh, a serious eight replicant, also a Blade Runner, uncovers a mystery during a seemingly routine retirement of a rogue replicant in hiding. As he digs deeper, the mystery points to an older renegade um, Blade Runner and a seemingly impossible anomaly. But K and his superior are not the only ones interested in this anomaly, and its discovery may unwind K's own understanding of himself. So, confession. I've only I had only seen the original and I mean the final cut of the original um, for the first time last month, which I only saw it just to watch the new one. Um, so for me, my view of seeing it after so many years of people talking it up. See, I didn't watch it in 1982 or 1990s or whatever uh, when the film was still considered quite um, uh, a pioneer of the, 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 the genre. Um, I... It's impossible for me to understand, to, to have experienced the same impact of the original. So I respect the original. I respect the original, and, and I have to sort of put my mind at 1982 when I watch it, and I can understand its impact. In fact, I think someone pointed out that The Road Warrior and Blade Runner came out in the same year, and those two films essentially influenced almost all films that are about the future since then. Um so, so I can totally understand its impact, and um, and so I don't think it's a perfect film, but uh, in fact, I think it's some flaws to it. But I can totally understand why it has such an impact uh, on uh, film craft and film art. Um, so I am very glad that Dennis Denis uh, Villeneuve he sort of makes it a continuation original. He's very respectful of the original, but he's also trying to do his own thing, and he's trying very hard to do his own thing. Um, and I think the images are, I mean, first of all, the images are stunning. It's a work of beauty. It, it's a, a film that you want to watch on a big screen at the cr most crisp projection you can find. Um, the production design is amazing. And um, much to the credit of Villeneuve, who insists on doing um, practical effects. He built, I think a lot of sets were actually built uh, instead of green screened. Um, which is why the film costs so much money to make. I think it's like, I hear it's about 150 to $175 million uh, US, which is this ridiculous amount to spend on a film that, you know, uh, there's only a sequel to a cult classic. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I mean, we all kind of benefit for that because the production design is amazing. Of course, the cinematography of Roger Deakins, a.k.a. God of the Cinematographers. Uh, they really just, those two things alone, I mean, they already make it enough to watch this film on a big screen. Uh, it's amazing how far technology has taken us. I mean, you look at the, the, the sets of the first film and how insanely complicated it was because it's pre-CGI and how insanely complicated it was to do those sets. Um, just imagine, I mean, now technology has taken us so far that actually has its um, design is the hardest part of of getting these shots. Um, I don't envy even the news job, though. I mean, you know, having to... Just like no one should envy me having to handle reviewing this film <laughs> myself. It, it's just an immense burden to to handle, to be carrying. But I think he's really pulled it off here. Um, of course, the film... One of the things that, they, that he does carry from the original film is the pacing. The original film ran very slow. It's not, a, it's not an exciting film. It's very ponderous, and it moves at a glacier pace. Um, and the plot is remarkably simple. Um, but for me, the pacing works because the film uses everything. It uses music and the sound and uh, the wide, wide images, a lot of blank space and you know, small image in the middle. Just all these things about setting and atmosphere. It's about the environment. And um, you can't say that it's not in the hands of a director who, who, who doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he Vindenuve knows exactly what he's doing, and he's doing this very deliberately. And it does it to a point where I don't understand why people would say that, oh, he could easily cut 10, 20 minutes out of the film and make it, you know, not two hours and 43 minutes. But if you look at the way he, po- he, he paced the movement, he practically makes it impossible for you to cut any more of it. I mean, because it, it, it's just all the this pacing is done on the set. It's not done in the editing room. It's all done on the set, and it is... Very deliberate again by by a, a filmmaker who has a sure grip on on his film, and um, it does carry on the themes of the original. So things like you know our origins and of course human nature and what makes us human. Those things are expanded um, and and further deepened. Even though it does sort of veer on self importance. The thing is, I think the deeper we get into obsessed about replicants and who is a replicant and who's not a replicant and 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 whatever and again try not to get into spoilers um replicants and replicants and replicants the more it's sort of has the sense of self-importance and it gets so in you know it's so deep into its own world that it, it stopped being relatable to what's going on it stopped being related relevant to what's going on today um uh, so with Hit's reboot of Alien and now Blade Runner, I think Ridley Scott seems to be obsessed with the origin of mankind or the the, the origin of of beings and again human nature. And I don't know if it's an age thing, um, if it's something about mortality, perhaps something that makes him look back and start to think about his own life or the origin of life and the origin of mankind. And I'm not sure. And it's interesting that, that he's exploring this, these issues in both alien and blade runner. Um, and trying to, I don't know why he has to do it, but he seems to be trying to pull the two franchises together. And to me, that doesn't really make sense. I think they should just be separate, but you know, really 
really can do whatever he wants. Ridley is Ridley, and it's his. You could technically, it's the writer's franchise, but you know, he 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 claims he takes credit on it, so it's all right. Fine, go ahead. Um, but you know, even though the 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 issues are quite cerebral, um, the journey of K is quite heartfelt. His his sort of almost you know realization every every layer of the onion that he peels back i think is quite interesting that it exposes something and it changes him and i think ryan gosling handles it quite well uh even though it's it's quite you know a solo act essentially um and i think there's a, a, a emotional punch at the end uh, towards the end um again we're trying to avoid spoilers so we can't go too deep into it but there is an emotional punch and i think there is a journey here that's worthwhile um that i can relate to um like the original the, the plot of 2049 is actually quite simple even though there's this whole culture of especially you know insisted by the studio of treating everything like a spoiler you know um but the plot is very very simple um it does unpack a lot of issues true and the issues are quite heavy but and, and you know it does spark a lot of debate even though some of those debates are like does it really matter who cares that kind of that kind of territory but the actual plot line is very simple the actual investigation and where where k goes um it's just point a to point b the, the journey isn't that complicated oh, excuse me the number of throwbacks to the original feels just right there's like a um uh, appearance by edward james Olmos. uh playing the the cop character even though he's not talking city speak anymore um it's there but the, the, the design of the sets and the lighting um i think veneneuve does his own puts in enough of his own views that it does feel like a different vision like the house the, the indoor sets the case apartment no longer you know actually has lights now so you remember the original Blade Runner? It, it almost feels like um, Decker doesn't have any lights in his apartment. That the all the lights come from outside from the spotlights, which no idea what the spotlights are. Why there are white lights shooting into the set? But um, that's how the apartments were lit. But here he actually goes with more minimalist thing, white lights. Uh, it's lit inside. And if you live in Hong Kong, as at least one or two viewers have mentioned this to me, uh, friends that seen the film, they're like, if you look at the back. Even the, the the air conditioner looks like they're from Hong Kong apartments. They have the outside, you know, they're put outside and their tubes going in. They look just like Hong Kong air conditioners, um, which I was quite amused by. But yeah, it, it's it's still Venom News' very own vision. Of course, there's there, you know, you can see in the trailer there are the amazing sets like the the lost uh, the 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 one in the desert. I don't want to say the city. I almost said the city, Paul. I'm sorry, but the the city, this desert city uh that uh you know with the um the casino and whatnot um and all that stuff those are beautiful and you know it, the, the original film didn't have any of those kind of sets um harrison ford shows up very late in the game and i think he's great even though he doesn't really get enough to do in my opinion um if you ask me about the debate which i I sided with Harrison Ford. I mean, the thing is, Harrison Ford played it like knew that he w Deckard wasn't a replicant. Really, Scott can talk about replicant all he wants, right? But the thing is, Harrison Ford played it differently, and he knows that it doesn't make any sense for Deckard to be a replicant. So I side with Harrison Ford in this issue. But the film still doesn't answer this question, so forget about it. Stop debating this. I don't because Veneuve, he he said himself at multiple interviews that that the most boring part of a question is actually the answer 
and then he finds the continuous debate about it more interesting than actually having it answered. So you're not going to find out if it's true or not because it's still frustratingly dropping little clues along the way just to psych you out, even though you know that Venedive is not going to give you an answer. Um, so let's just throw that debate out the window because because it's totally irrelevant to the, to the, to the film, I think. Um, and there's so much hoo-ha about who's a replicant and who's not a replicant that I'm just starting to stop caring. I don't care anymore. I mean, most I think most of the film's characters are replicants, and I don't see the point of it. Like, okay, it's it makes sense within the universe of the film, but I'm I I, I stop caring. Um, but the relationship between Kay and Joy, uh, I'm being deliberately ambiguous here. Joy, a female character, does have some relevance in the real world, and I like that part of the plot a lot. So, is Blade Runner twenty forty nine? Is it a sci fi classic? A lot of critics say yes. I think I don't want to jump to conclusions. I think calling anything a classic within two weeks of its release is just clickbait. Um, I think that the term classic should not be uh, thrown around so quickly after a film has been unveiled to an audience. I think it takes some time to brew. Um, we might know maybe in a year or two if every, people are still talking about this film. Then sure, we can go ahead and call it classic. Um, but I think it's still too early, it's still too early to tell, especially since there's so much noise about how badly the film has performed at the box office because you know trades, right? Trades. That's how they work. Um, so I am not going to call it a classic or anything yet. It is a very good sci-fi film. It is one of the most stunning big screen experiences you have all year. It's definitely not everyone's cup of tea. Yes, it's a huge but big budget and it's released like a big Hollywood blockbuster, but it is not everyone's cup of tea. Um, but I did enjoy it a lot. So, Paul, hand it over to you. Yeah, so the, I mean, this film has been a long time coming and it's been one that when I heard it was announced and I saw the cast and then when I saw the release date, I was very, very nervous about it. I'm not a big Ryan Gosling fan, for one. Um, he's okay, um, but I really liked him in this film. Um, I was very nervous when they said it's going to be an October release date because I'm thinking that's usually where they put movies that they thought were going to be blockbusters that are pretty bad and are going to turn out to not be blockbusters. Um, but I was presently pleasantly surprised to be wrong in this regard because, I mean, financially this film may not be doing very well, um, but I think that it carries on the legacy of the Blade Runner franchise extremely well. And, I mean, when, when you think about all of the remakes and reboots and sequels that have come out from classic films of the sort of 80s, 90s science fiction era, be it, um, you know, things like Total Recall or the endless Terminator films, um, the endless alien films. I mean, it really seems like more often than not, um, the sequels, the reboots are, are disappointing. And at least in this case, I'm glad to say that we have a sequel that at least if it's not quite as good as the original, it's at least on par enough to be entertaining and watchable and to feel like it belongs. Um, I don't think I'd say that about Prometheus or Alien Covenant necessarily. Um, I certainly wouldn't say it about the, the RoboCop remake or um, the Total Recall remake um, or even most of the Terminator films. Um, I think uh, T2 is the hard exception, right? So, I mean... 
this film, it's a lot to unpack. And it's long, it's slow, it takes its time. It's like an essay, and I think that's great. Um, you don't get a lot of science fiction essays anymore. And you don't get ones that are done well and across, you know, multiple channels that where the multiple channels kind of serve the story rather than are just, you know, tacked on. Um, so and if you're not aware, there are three shorts that are done um, at the behest of the director by other directors, starting with uh, Blade Runner Blackout 2022, which is an anime by Shinichiro Watanabe um, that kind of tells the the background story of this blackout that gets mentioned and why that's relevant to things going on in the current film. Then there's another film called um, Blade Runner 2036 Nexus Dawn, which happens in 2036, directed by Luke Scott, which gives a bit of an introduction to the Jared Leto character of uh, Wallace, um, this big tycoon who basically takes over for the Tyrell Corporation. Um, and that features Benedict Wong uh, as well. And then there's uh, Blade Runner 2048, which is a year before uh, the 2049 events called Nowhere to Run. Um, also directed by Luke Scott, which features uh, Dave Bautista uh, as Sapper Morton, which it's very, a very short story, but it kind of introduces what happens to start off the events of that, that lead K to him in uh, 2049 which kind of kicks off the story so those are definitely worth a watch um all very good quality and, and you know one's an animation the other two are live action all fit well within the universe and give you uh further expansion of this universe um i you know kevin really gave a great rundown of many of the plot points just a few things i'll say the j joy and k relationship for me was the highlight of the film and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and I don't want to get too far into that for fear of spoilers, but there are a lot of parallels with the movie Her, I would say, but this film takes it a step further, and it fluctuates between ideas to make me think, uh, you know, we think about ideas of sentience and artificial intelligence and artificial life, you know, that's revolving around the replicants here, and his relationship with Joy takes that a step further. But it also leaves you hanging in a place sometimes because it, it, it goes back and forth between the nature of this relationship between these two sort of artificial characters. And, you know, what is the nature of love and, and true love versus programming? You know, uh, so very, some very interesting uh, aspects between these two characters that I really, really enjoyed. If there was something I didn't like about the film, I would say um, parts of the soundtrack. Um, because the original film has a very iconic soundtrack, it's something I've listened to many, many, many times. I mean, it's 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 part of my playlist. Um, I love Vangelis. I love the smooth nature uh, of of that original soundtrack. Though the Vangelis soundtrack, the the CD soundtrack, they kind of do the thing where they throw in bits of movie dialogue at times, which I'm not a big fan of. But here, Zimmer kind of apes the Vangelis soundtrack, and it works, but at times it kind of gets overdone with his own sort of bombastic style, which kind of pulled me out uh, at times. So while I do appreciate the attempt to get the sound right, um, 
there are just some moments where I think it's a bit too much of his own take on it. Um, but that's just my personal reflection uh, on the music. Um, so there are great callbacks to the original and to the 80s. I mean, big Sony logos, big Atari logos. I mean, things that make this really just fit right in with, um, with the original film. I guess in terms of the characters, the one thing that I was not really on board with was Jared Leto's role um, of as Wallace. As you know, he's kind of this big, almost anime-esque villain um, in the way that he's portrayed and that the way he talks. He gives these like lengthy monologues, and and he's supposed to be the counterpoint to Tyrell, who was sort of the big father figure aka god figure of the replicants in the first film and here i really don't know i don't understand his motivation other than kind of being megalomaniacal you know it's it's you know he's the god figure but at the same time it's like his the thing he wants seems to be the same thing that another group their motivation wants i mean that you'd think they're on the same page but they're working opposite each other too it's i had a hard time uh with his character <coughs> perhaps future viewings will help me resolve that but um i really think you know you, you kind of could have just not had his scenes you could have had love running around doing stuff with this sort of faceless figure behind her and it worked with the movie would have worked you know just as well but I guess on to the big thing, the De Deckard as a replicant um, discussion. Now, I was somebody who saw, I'm dating myself here, saw the original film in the cinema when it was not the director's cut. Um, I'm talking about the cut that you can still kind of see if you get the LD, and I guess I guess it's on the newer version as a special edition. Um, and that is the narration cut. Um in the narration cut where Harrison Ford narrates, um, if you've read up on Ridley Scott and how this was handled, um, something that you know he was against and that the studios did um, in sort of a post-production post mode where they pulled Harrison Ford back. They thought it was too heady. They thought audiences wouldn't understand what was going on. And so they basically turned it into a super noir film. It's already very noirish, but they basically gave it narration and made it very much like a sort of Mike Hammer or Philip Marlowe style thing. You know, detective meets girl, girl turns out to be robot, and they fall in love, and meanwhile he's hunting down some bad bots, right? Very straightforward, very simplistic story by design. Later we get the director's cut and then the super cuts later where uh, Ridley Scott is able to go back in and put things back in he wanted in the original cut. And this includes the allusion to the idea that Rep Deckard is a replicant. Um, and very direct allusions to those, such as unicorn dreams and unicorn, um, you know, uh, crane figures. Like, uh, what, what are those called, Kevin? Um, what, unicorn? <coughs> no, the, the, the paper figures that... Um, uh, origami. Origami, yes, yeah, sorry. The, the unicorn origami and, and that kind of stuff, which point to the fact that Deckard does not know what he is, but other people know what he is. Um, so with those future cuts, Deckard, in my mind, has always been uh, a replicant. And it makes it, for me, a much more interesting and engaging story than boy meets replicant and falls in love and they run away together. 
because now it becomes a question of Deckard was hunting um, Nexus 6 models. That's Roy Batty and his crew. They had a limited lifespan and they knew it. Rachel was something new. And ergo, if Deckard is a replicant, he is something new like Rachel. That is, they did not have a limited lifespan and they did not know what they were. So here you have this idea of identity, the two of them discovering their natures throughout the course of the first film. But with that discovery that their memories are not real, we get into questions of what about them and their choices is actually real? Is their love real? Or was that also programmed by Tyrell? Were they programmed to, you know, be destined to come together? And this leads into events that we are uncovered in the, the, this new film. Um, and so I've, I got into this discussion with uh, Stephen over on um, the... You know, he's been a guest here on the Mofos Ice Skating Uphill podcast, and we we got into this discussion on Facebook because he's kind of in the same camp as Kevin. You know, he's like, I, "Does it really matter?" And I think for me, it's it's a better story, it's a more interesting story if we're now thinking about creators and creations, and ideas about free will and where does humanity start, where does it end? And this film, by design, because of the anomaly that comes up you know, takes that question even further. And for me, that's uh, a very interesting area. And that points back to, again, the Joy-K relationship and the nature of them as creations. And, you know, where does programming end and where does sentience and free will and things like emotion and love, you know, where does that begin? <clears throat> so um, that's why I f tend to fall on the side of the, yes, the Deckard is a replicant. And for me... That makes it um, a more interesting story. But again, this is constructed as such by both directors in both cases, as you can read into it how you want. Again, the Joy K relationship, as I said, I was moving back and forth on, you know, from what the director was showing me, the way they interacted, the way they end things with these characters. I'm like, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm still not quite sure. I have an idea, but not quite sure. And that is what makes the film so interesting. It's what makes it engageable and watchable multiple times over. And I think this points back to Kevin's very accurate point that maybe it's not as interesting if we specifically know, but if only allusions to ideas are, are there and we're left to sort of interpret that. Um, I'd also mention too, <clears throat> for fans of the HBO series Westworld, um, you know, the the universes are not technically connected, um, but the Westworld writers did throw in some Easter eggs there that would point to Westworld kind of being part of, uh, of the same universe, although perhaps earlier with the hosts being sort of earlier versions of replicants at, at you know, some point, uh, which because they're playing with a lot of the same ideas, too. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of, again, as Kevin pointed, those cultural connections that we have back to films of this area, like Blade Runner, like uh, The Road Warrior, and um, others that, that really sort of defined things. Um, I'm thinking, too, of a Back to the Future and very current popular stuff like Rick and Morty, right? Um, you don't get Rick and Morty um, or pop culture things like Szechuan Sauce without, again, the the original Back to the Future series and, and that kind of pairing of characters so <clears throat> um 
I mean, this is a film to watch. If, if you've seen the original, if you like the original, you've got to watch this. You Perhaps you may not like it as much, but I think there's a lot there. I understand why it's not perhaps doing so well financially, because, you know, again, a lot of people I talk to in science fiction circles and circles that you would think would be on board with this film, you know, technology geeks and things like that, never saw the original because it's such an old film, you know. And so now they're like tasked with going and watching the lengthy original and this lengthy film itself at two hours and what, 44 minutes or so. And they're kind of like, well, maybe I'll just wait till it's on Netflix or something, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's a film to see. It's a film to watch, especially if you've not watched the original, do your homework, watch the original, watch the short features and go watch the film. Kevin, further points to add? No, I mean, I think you did brought me back a little bit around the replicant point of a free will and things like that. But no, I, I again, because I don't, didn't, I'm not, I don't revere, you know, the blame because I don't have this 30 year relationship with this film. Yeah. Star Wars, maybe because I watched it when I was very young and, and, you know, and it just kept, they kept up that myth making. Yeah. Right. But Blade Runner, which is kind of gone for 30 years, entirely kept alive by these fans instead of its creators, and it's just been talked up so much that it becomes sort of almost like a a myth, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a bit different. So for me, I don't carry the same reverence for Blade Runner. Although now, now you're revealing your age. I was like, you watched, uh, you saw the original one, yeah. and I was like, yeah. Um, but did you you did watch the final cut right later on? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. So which one um, do you prefer? Do you respect Ridley Scott's vision, you know, and say, okay, and you just like, well, okay, I respect his vision, so I agree the final cut should be the final cut, or do you, you know, do you just have memories of the original and that you just hold that to to it? Well, you know, that's an interesting point, because, uh, you know, when I was t- talking with um, with Stephen, Stephen, mm, you know, I was saying I really like this idea of Deckard as a replicant. I mean, that just makes it a much more interesting story. But when I was talking with our other friend of the show, Kenneth Brorson, I have a fond place in my heart for the original theatrical release as this kind of, you know, again, Philip Marlowe with Harrison Ford doing the narration. You know, that I have a bit of nostalgia for that one, too. Um, again, I think it's a less interesting version for those very same reasons, because they you know, Hollywood kind of re-edited as this very sort of standard noir film in a science fiction dystopia. Um, so, you know, I, I can see the affinity for both and I kind of have an affinity for both. But um, I think if, you know, if I'm going to go back and rewatch it, I want to rewatch the the director's cut or the final cut, as, as it's called. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily LoveHKFilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. 
You can find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And as always, you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. And please do follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? You can uh, read my new site, uh, Asia and Cinema. That's asiaandcinema.com, one word. I will be traveling to the Tokyo International Film Festival next week, so expect some coverage there. I'm also in a media partnership with Poland's Five Flavors Festival. We can I can review this now, so I will be writing a few pieces about their lineup um, as that festival approaches as well. And in the middle, I would try and do some news as well. It's just been hectic. I just finished another subtitle uh, for a film that's playing at a festival later this month. And I'm now doing another script translation. I got to do all this before I fly to Tokyo. So it's just been incredibly hectic. And I apologize for not really keeping up the website as much as I should have in the last couple of months. Um, but you can you know, follow the Facebook. Sometimes I do post extra news on the Facebook page, especially on the Facebook page. Um, you can also follow um, us on Twitter, at uh, Asia in Cinema. And then uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. You can read my work on Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine. Uh, both they're on Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragon Airlines, respectively. Um, you can read my new monthly feature on the Discovery website. It is a listicle of uh, highlights or you know extensions of every month's entertainment program. So things like talk show appearance or director dissecting certain scenes and things like that. Uh, you can find that in the front page of Discovery uh, Dig Digital Discovery, which is on CathayPacific.com/discovery. Uh, you can email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right, excellent. As always, please do check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Network as well. Next show, episode 243. Um, Kevin, you're going to review the movie It, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's even, that, that is still less terrifying than the new Patrick Kong film, which I have already seen, by the way. Are you sure? Uh, uh, I've heard that's pretty terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely avoiding that one, so... What it or Patrick Kong? <laughs> it, it, yeah. Bring, bring on the Patrick Kong. I'm okay with that, but uh, yeah, I just uh, scary clowns don't do it for me, so I'm gonna take a hard pass on that one. Um, we'll be back with something, uh, all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying, "Don't make Quan angry. You won't like him when he's angry." And we'll see you next time. See you next time, buddy.